0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to read together verses 14 through 21. We're back in Romans for a few weeks, making our way through this this great, great letter. We started it over three years ago. We've been in and out of it for the last three years. We'll be in and out of it for a while to come. Let me read these verses and encourage you, even as I'm reading them, that you ask the Lord yourselves for help in taking them in and understanding and applying them. Verse 14, Romans 9, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? And then continuing at verse 24, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is God's word, and let me pray for us uh, now that God would give us help in understanding it. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that every, uh, every letter, every phrase, every bit of it may be trusted because it comes from you, and do help us to remember that it comes to us from you because you love your people. You love your people. So Jesus, by your spirit, come and walk among us and open our hearts and take this your word and pour it into those opened hearts that it might do its work in our hearts. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, everybody struggles with the providence and sovereignty of God. Everybody struggles with it. Every, every, everything, including I can't find my keys to Superstorm Sandy, raises uh, issues of God's providence and ultimately God's sovereignty. Everybody wrestles with it. There's one um, particularly kind of fun and enjoyable Musing on the sovereignty of God that I'd like to share with you this morning. It comes from a novel by uh, by Frankie Schaeffer, son of Francis Schaeffer, called Portofino. And the main character in the little novel is um, is a nine year old boy. He's I think he's eight or nine in the first half of the book, and then he's twelve or thirteen in the second half of the book. But this this little musing comes from from a nine year old boy wrestling with this matter of the sovereignty of God. And this is the passage. My experiment was to see if I could do something halfway, then stop or change it so fast that I could beat the sovereignty of God. I started to pour out a little salt onto the table, but just as more was about to come out, I suddenly stopped and started to shake the rice around in the cellar so God would lose count of the grains of salt. Then I started to put it down, but instead yanked it up above my head. And I did it so fast that salt came out all over me. In a way, that was good, since God is sovereign. He knows your thoughts all the time. So how could I do something he hadn't planned for since the beginning of time? I was glad when the salt came out all over my head, because it was a surprise to me, and so it might have been a surprise to God too. But then I figured he knew I was, going to, I was going to do this thing with the salt from before I was born, so he was probably still sovereign, and Calvin was right and had God figured out. And while I was thinking this, Dad said, what on earth did you do that for? And before I thought, I just blurted out, God made me do it. Great little passage, right? Musing on on the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. Folks, in Romans 9, we are smack dab in the middle. We are in the thick of wrestling with these things. God's providence god's sovereignty particularly god's providence and god's sovereignty touching this matter of human salvation the salvation of individuals that's where we are that's that's what we're dealing with we're dealing with god here and we've we've made some progress in working through this it's been it's been a few weeks uh, but 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 we're in it. Um, and, and what I want us to do as we get to this particular passage is just is just sort of think about some things, hopefully that come out of the text for you as we as we wrestle with what is what is mysterious and profound and 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 sometimes hard to swallow. But we are in we, we are face to face with God and we are in the midst of wrestling with God's sovereignty as it touches salvation, with God's providence as it touches salvation, and how God in sovereign electing mercy in order to show, uh, as the passage says, in order to show the riches of His glory calls from the mass of fallen humanity those whom He saves. That's what we're wrestling with here. So let me give you... Let me give you three pegs to hang this passage on that I hope will provide both some context as well as some exposition of the passage. Here are the three pegs. What's the underlying problem here? What's the underlying problem? What's the necessary solution to the problem? And what's the appropriate response to all of this? What's the underlying problem What's the necessary solution and what's the appropriate response? If you've been through my inquirers class sometime in the last six years, you probably you're gonna remember some of this. But but you know, those things that we think we know are often things that we take for granted and pass over too lightly. And so it's really always appropriate to come back to some foundational things. And this is a foundational thing. There is an underlying problem here. And it is a problem that sort of pervades the whole of the book of Romans. In fact, it is a problem that pervades the whole of the rest of the scriptures. And it is a problem that is pervasive in the whole of human experience. And the underlying problem is the human condition. That's the underlying problem. It's the thing we don't want to talk about. It's the thing, the depth of which we repeatedly fail to take seriously. We repeatedly fail to take seriously. It is the ever-present backdrop to everything the Apostle is saying here. It is the human condition. It is the problem of sin, the problem of sin. Please distinguish in your minds the problem of sin from the external and sometimes internal manifestations or evidences of the deep problem, sins. Please distinguish the two. Sin is a condition. It is the condition of the human heart. Paul's talked about it in this letter. He's talked about it extensively. He's spent a couple of chapters of the first eight chapters diagnosing the human condition and arguing that this is a problem not only for those nasty Gentiles out there in the world. That's chapter 1. But it's a... And I'm, I'm going to use language that is more understandable for us, it's also a problem for those of us in the church. Right? Walking into this place, embracing these things that we embrace as Christians, does not insulate us from the problem that sin is. The remedy is here. even knowing the remedy, if you read Paul closely, particularly in Romans 7, even though we know the remedy and have experienced the remedy, the problem is still a problem. Paul's dealt with it. He's dealt with it in great detail. Look at Romans 3, verse 9 and following. What then? Are we Jews, meaning are we in the church any better off than they are with respect to this condition, with respect to this problem? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin are under sin. It's a small word, but it's a really big word. And Paul has in mind a couple of things, I believe, as he uses that word. He means, first of all by it, that apart from Christ, we are under the dominion of sin. We are under the power of sin. You see that later in chapter 6, verses 15 and other places. Romans six fifteen. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness See see sin describing the human condition isn't a, it's not an issue of the things you do it's not even in a sense an issue of the things that occur to you in your head the stuff that happens on the inside it's a question of being enslaved It's a question of having no freedom. It's a question of of having a power, a dominant power over you, keeping you in bondage. That's the language of, of master and slave. All alike, apart from Christ, are under the power of sin. And then there's another sense in which Paul uses this language of being under. We're not only under its power in the way that a slave is under the full control and authority and power of a master, but we are under the condemnation that comes as a result of lawlessness. We're exposed to judgment. I mean... Why in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, verse 1 of chapter 8, why would there be such euphoria? And that's what comes out of the text. Why would there be such euphoria coming from the heart of the Apostle Paul regarding being justified, regarding no longer being under condemnation if condemnation were not a really big problem? It's these two things. We are both under The power and the dominion of sin. And we are under the threat of condemnation because sin is lawlessness. You see this in Ephesians 2. Paul reminding these Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 2 of what their condition was. What was their condition? Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Dead. Whenever I read this and think about this, I think about the Steve Martin movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Well, not only do they not wear plaid, they don't do anything. They don't get dressed. They don't get undressed. They don't change their wardrobes. They don't do anything. Dead means dead. But the language here is so striking because Paul also uses language filled with animation, right? Walking, in which we once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the air. Dead men walking. Right? When I teach this in my inquiries class, for those of you who have not done it or for whom it's been a long time, I always reference Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I always tell people, if I want to win friends and influence people, I'm not going to talk about this. This does not win friends and influence people. To say that we, apart from Christ, apart from Christ are like dead men walking. And then I use the illustration that comes from one of my favorite movies, the 1975 version of Dracula with Frank Langella, who is the most dominant, most attractive, most winsome, most powerful, most persuasive, most clever, most romantic, most seductive character in the whole film. And his protagonist or antagonist, one's the pro, the other's the an, I don't remember which is or how that works exactly, but his protagonist, antagonist, whatever, is Sir Lawrence Olivier, who plays the role, role of Abraham von Helsinki, who's the only one who understands what's going on. That what appears to be so lovely and delightful and beautiful and winsome and wise and attractive and powerful is in fact the embodiment of what is evil. And what is evil bites the daughter of Abraham von Helsink, Mina. And she's already sick, and with the loss of blood, she dies. But the wise man, Abraham von Helsink, knows that when evil bites you, it doesn't in fact kill you. You become one of the undead. And Abraham von Helsink knows that what has to happen The imagery, the picture, the metaphor is so staggeringly profound. He knows that what has to happen for her, if she is to be liberated from her death, which is not really a death, but a walking and living death, what has to happen is that he has to take a wooden stake and drive it through her heart. She has to be impaled on wood. Can I fill in the blank for you? Anyone who would follow me must take up his cross, her cross, daily and follow me. You must be impaled upon a cross in order to live. But until that happens, you are one of the undead, looking very much alive. But like Mina, if you've seen the film, frothing at the mouth, Red hot eyes, blood flowing, the blood of previous victims. Mina is one of the undead, dead but not dead. Houston, we have a problem. This is where the gospel begins, my friends. Do you remember Mel Gibson's interview with Diane Sawyer? I've mentioned this more times than you probably remember or I do. The famous interview. Mel! Mel! Did the Jews kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? No, Diane, don't you get it? We killed Jesus. You want evidence of the degree and severity of the problem? When the God of perfect righteousness comes into the world, when the God of perfect compassion comes into the world, what do we do with Him? We kill Him. We kill Him. We don't flock to Him. We don't bow before Him. We don't honor Him. We don't regard Him. We kill him. So what's the solution? One word is the solution. God is the solution. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. That's Ephesians 2, verse 5. Hear it from Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Parenthetical comment consistent with Romans 6 Consistent with Ephesians 2, the human will is not free. It is in bondage in sin. It cannot will its way out of this condition. It cannot exert itself enough in order to escape this condition. It is in bondage. And so what is the solution? The solution purely and simply is God who in mercy acts using the language of Ephesians 2.5 to raise us up out of death and seat us in Christ at his own right hand. What's the answer? The answer is God, my friends. The answer was God, it is God, it ever will be God who is rich in mercy. Paul uses a little illustration, an illustration that would have been very, very familiar to the folks who heard this letter, at least the Jewish readers who would have heard this letter read. And there would have been many of them. He uses this illustration taken from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. It comes out of the Old Testament. It is the imagery of a potter and his clay. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonored use? What is the lump? The lump, my friends is the mass of humanity. And it's very clear as we get deeper into the passage at verse 25 where the Apostle is referring to Jews and to Gentiles, he clearly has all of humanity in view, not merely Israel, but all of humanity is this lump. And what is this lump? It is the lump of fallen humankind in this condition of being in bondage in sin. And so what is the answer to the human condition? It is simply the potter who holds the lump of clay in his hands for reasons I'll never fully understand but which I hope I understand more clearly on the other side of the return of Christ when so much more will be made clear to me Which right now, with respect to myself, I can't begin to understand why it is that God would take portions of that lump and separate them out and form them and fashion them and shape them and mold them so that they might be vessels of great honor which would contain His glory and reflect His glory, why He should do that with some and with not the whole of the lump, I don't understand. But here's what the passage is saying. If He doesn't do it, there isn't anybody compassionate enough, big enough, powerful enough to do it. God alone is sufficient out of this fallen mass of humanity to extract from that common lump what he will form and fashion into individual vessels to contain and reflect his glory. If I'm a Christian today, If you are a Christian today, there is simply only one explanation for why that is the case. God, who is rich in mercy, has raised you up, extracted you from the common lump of fallen humanity, that he might form you and shape you into a vessel to contain and reflect his extraordinary, unparalleled, unsurpassing, incomprehensible beauty and glory. And Pharaoh serves to function as an illustration of what God, in his wisdom, passes over. Don't misunderstand the language here. Go back and read the narrative of the Exodus. It's fascinating to read the narrative of the Exodus and see that in the very early chapters of Exodus, Exodus 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then several times through that narrative, the narrative tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then sometimes, two or three times, the verb is in the passive Passive voice, which means that his heart was hardened, whether by himself or by God, is unclear. Don't forget this. Pharaoh came into this deal with a heart already hardened. That's why it's so important to put these passages in the larger context of what the Scriptures teach. Pharaoh was no more neutral about these things than any other son or daughter of Adam And Eve, he didn't come to this with a neutral heart, an interested heart. He came to this with a heart disposed to hardness. And so he further hardens an already hardened heart. And God further hardens an already hardened and unbelieving heart. That's where I would be, friends. That's where I would be. I know it in my bones. I know it in my bones. If God had not acted in mercy with respect to this sinner, this disinterested heart, this hardened heart. I don't know who your pastor would be, but it wouldn't be me. I'm a good liar but I don't know that I'm capable of lying that well. And so how do we respond? How do we respond, my friends? Well, the inappropriate response is verse 19. This is a tough word, folks. The human condition is not an easy word to hear, the singularly necessary, essential Word of God and work of God in overcoming the human condition is not an easy thing to hear. But here's what we don't want to say. We don't want to say what, in a sort of periphrastic way of rendering verse 19, is reflected in 19. We don't want to say, my God would never behave that way. My God would never do that. God cannot be that way. That's not the right response, folks. If this is the way it is, then who can, who can resist God? He wills whatever he wants. The salt goes up in the air. It falls on my head. My father says, why on earth did you do something like that? And the answer is, God made me do it. You know, at the supremely theological level, meaning the realm of God, that little nine-year-old boy was absolutely right. God does ordain whatsoever comes to pass, start to finish, inclusive, of everything, because he is God. At the human level, here's the great mystery. Somehow that little nine-year-old boy's musings and reflections on a salt shaker are real, not illusions, the functioning of his own real mind and heart. And that salt flying up in the air is a function of his own real action. And Pharaoh's hard heart was a function of his own hard-heartedness. And God raised him up for an express and specific purpose. To manifest his glory, his overpowering glory in the deliverance of a people from underneath his brutal regime. God raised him up for that purpose. Pharaoh's heart is hardened because he has a hardened heart. And the wrong response to all of this is to say, my God would not do that, and God must not be that way. That's the wrong response. The right response is to hear the Apostle Paul as pastorally, pastorally he says, who are you to answer back To God and to say to the Creator, the Sovereign of the universe, why have you made me this way? This warrants a sermon, doesn't it? Deeply practical and personal application of a truth. I'm never in any position to raise my fist in the face of God and say, why have you made me this way? Who are you to do such a thing? That's fascinating and fabulous conversation. I'll just close with this. Fascinating conversation with a friend this last week who was reflecting out loud with me on his own reflections on the lament psalms that fill the Psalter. About a third, a quarter to a third of the psalms are laments. The psalmist complaining against God. And in every case but one, those psalms end up with a note of praise, a note of hope, a note of thanksgiving, an affirmation of something that is true about God. And the question is, what happens? Where's the switch that flips that the psalmist would go from complaining against God, arguing with God, to at the end, praising God, delighting in the hope that there is in God, affirming some truth about the goodness of God. And my friend's reflection was simply this. At some point in the midst of of the complaint, the psalmist realizes the sheer foolishness of it. The sheer foolishness of it. Here I am, complaining against the only one in the universe who has repeatedly demonstrated that he cares about me. At some point, the switch flips and the complainer becomes the praiser because the complainer realizes the one against whom he is registering his complaint is the only one who consistently, unrelentingly cares about him. Folks, I don't for a minute minimize the struggle there is in coming to terms with this. But what I would suggest to you, particularly on this Sunday morning, that as we wrestle with these things, as we seek to come to terms with these things, we keep before us always what is the supreme evidence of, of God's undying and unrelenting goodness toward you. And that is this table spread before you. And so my response to what are admittedly difficult things and mysterious things is simply to remind myself of who I am and who I am not. I am not God, and God is. And as God, who has evidenced himself to be supremely merciful in the gift of his Son, that God is worthy, not of my complaints, though I understand why they come. He is worthy of my praise.